Welcome to the White Coat Life Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Certified Coach Paula White, MD. If you're a physician in academic medicine looking for skills to understand and take control of your experiences, both in work and out, this is a great place to start. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me again today. Today, I'm going to talk about something that I've been actively working on for the past several weeks, and I thought it would be a good place to share it. So keep in mind that I generally record a couple weeks ahead of time. So what I'm talking about today isn't happening real time. And that only matters for those of you who know me in real life. Okay, so ever since I broke my wrist, as you can imagine, I haven't been able to do most of what I normally do at work. The first couple of weeks, I wasn't supposed to be using my fingers on my right hand at all. And even if I had been allowed to, I wouldn't have because everything hurt. And also, even if I had been allowed to, and even if they didn't hurt, they were so swollen that they were just completely useless. So what that meant is I could only do things that I could do with one hand. So obviously, taking call and operating were both out of the question. Doing annual exams was also out of the question, since you can't do a speculum exam with one hand. In the beginning, I couldn't even do return OB patients unassisted because I couldn't measure fundal heights without someone else to hold one end of the measuring tape. Even getting heart tones was a challenge. There are all these little things that you think you should be able to do with one hand logically, but it turns out to be a lot more complicated than you thought. I thought, sure, I can measure a fundal height. I'll just have the patient help. Well, I tried that a couple of times and no luck. So I'm, I pushed the zero end of the measuring tape down on the pubic bone like I always do. But in the act of trying to hand that off to the patient, who, by the way, is reaching around their pregnant belly and can't see anything, it always got displaced. And maybe the one or two times that it looked like it was reasonably in place, then I'd realize that it's normally my right hand the currently useless one that finds the top of the fundus. So then I'm on the wrong side of the table. And even if I switch sides, my left hand just isn't really used to it. It doesn't have any muscle memory. It turns out that even something as simple as this, if you've been doing it one way for 23 years, it takes a minute to relearn it. And heart tones should be no problem, right? You can take the wand out of the cradle with one hand. You can turn the Doppler on and off with one hand. Okay, but you can't hold the Doppler and the wand, which means you're trying to find a place on top of the patient's belly or legs to balance it while you're working. And those are not flat surfaces. So you've almost got the heart tones and then the Doppler slides off and now it's dangling and you're starting all over. Even checking a cervix, which I definitely only use my left hand for. Well, how do you get the glove on and off if you can't use your right fingers? Over the weeks, as things are healing and I've got some use of my right fingers again, I'm slowly and clumsily regaining the ability to do some of these basic tasks. And this is all a very long way of saying that my contribution to patient care has been pretty small. Now, because we're a busy practice at baseline and we were already a little bit short-staffed, my limitations have had a pretty serious impact on my partners and the patients. People had to pick up my calls, which meant canceling their own office, not to mention spending more nights than usual in the hospital, which means more time away from family and less sleep. People had to pick up the surgeries that I already had scheduled, the ones that weren't appropriate to postpone, and that's uncomfortable for both the doctor and for the patient. Most patients who had appointments with me had to either reschedule with another provider, which is not easy since, again, we have a big access problem at baseline, 
or reschedule with me months later, which is really frustrating because a lot of them had already been waiting for months for these appointments already. And while we've done our best to communicate to patients that we'll absolutely find a way to address any problems and concerns in a timely fashion, it's just no matter how you look at it, it's far from ideal. And this goes on and on. Now, overwhelmingly, the patients have been so understanding, more than understanding. I don't even know how many messages I've gotten from patients saying, no problem, I hope you're okay, I'll see you in the fall. And my colleagues, well, I'm sure I've mentioned before how much I love them. I honestly have gotten nothing but support. But the downstream effect is that everyone else is working more and I'm working less. And so I felt guilty, which made me think about this. What is guilt? There are a couple different definitions in Merriam-Webster. The one I want to focus on is this one. Guilt is a feeling of deserving blame, especially for imagined offenses or from a sense of inadequacy. Bingo. So guilt has a utility sometimes. Humans are fallible. We make mistakes. If we slip up by behaving in a way that's not congruent with our personal morals, especially if our actions may have harmed someone else, well, guilt might be a reminder of why our moral system is what it is and why we want to follow it. It can be the part of the conscience that aims to keep us in line. But it also can be completely misguided, as in that dictionary definition that I referenced, imagined offenses or sense of inadequacy. The logical brain can dismiss this. The logical brain knows the difference between when reckless actions cause someone harm, and in that case, in my mind anyway, blame can be assigned, and that's deserving of guilt, versus the sequelae of a fairly random accident, which in my mind, there's no blame. It's unfortunate, unwanted, but no one's at fault. But again, as we know, our logical brains don't always call the shots. There are lots of reasons why some people are more prone to feeling guilt than others. It's probably partly due to upbringing. It's probably just something that's internal for some people. There's definitely an influence of some religions. There are a couple that seem to suggest that if you're not feeling guilty pretty much all the time, something must be wrong with you. And for doctors and other healthcare professionals, I think the nature of what we do and how we're trained and the culture of medicine in general make us more prone to having misguided guilt. Medicine has a long and robust history of placing blame on individual people when the true culprit was a faulty system. No matter how hard we try, sometimes the old attitude of blame and shame still seeps in. I think that a lot of the time it's not malicious, it's just misguided. When we feel guilty about work stuff, I think it usually falls into one of a couple different buckets. Number one, there was a bad outcome, therefore I must be at fault, and if I'm at fault, I must suffer. Or number two, someone is suffering, therefore I must also suffer. When you look at them from a purely logical point of view, guilt might make a little bit of sense sometimes in scenario number one, but it never makes sense in scenario number two. All right, so let's look at scenario number one a little more. And reminder, this was bad outcome equals I must be at fault equals I must suffer. 
If someone has been engaging in reckless behavior, meaning knowingly deviating from best practice, ignoring all warning signs, and then there's a near miss or a bad outcome, a little bit of guilt might help prevent this behavior in the future. Might. We're going to come back to that. If someone has been engaging in risky, not reckless, step down from that behavior, and there's a near miss or a bad outcome, again, little bit of guilt might be useful. If someone was following best practice and trying their hardest, how could guilt possibly help? It can't. So let's look at those limited scenarios where it can be helpful. If the thought that dominates is, I know I can do better, or I know I will do better, this can create a feeling of motivation or commitment or something similar to those. And those feelings drive someone to increase their vigilance, work on their own education, encourage others to improve. The result is that they will do better. But, big but, if the dominant thought is something like, I'm a terrible person, then they're probably going to feel something along the lines of worthlessness, which is going to promote actions like being apathetic, withdrawing, engaging in a lot of negative self-talk, loss of confidence, and the result is that they will veer further and further from their own internal definition of the type of person or doctor they want to be. Remember, our brains are extremely good at proving true whatever we think to be true. The brain will either find and exaggerate any evidence it can, or it will create it. Okay, so how about scenario number two? Someone else is suffering, so therefore I must suffer. Or, put a different way, it's not okay for me to be happy or content when someone else is suffering. It's not fair. So again, this is rooted in best intentions. It comes out of empathy or desire to be empathetic. Or maybe we just don't want someone who's suffering to feel alone, and we think that if we suffer with them, that will somehow help. But you see where this is headed. The problem is that your thoughts and emotions have no impact on someone else's thoughts and emotions. Even your actions aren't guaranteed to impact someone's emotions. You suffering won't lessen anyone else's pain at all. Just like worrying, it's only pretending to be useful. Which is not to say that being sensitive isn't important and reading the room and offering support and condolence and whatever else might be appropriate. But you can do all of those things without feeling guilty or adding additional suffering, your own, to the equation. If we apply this to my example about feeling guilty that I've been working less while my colleagues are working more, if I feel guilty, it doesn't lessen their workload. If I feel guilty, it doesn't make me able to help. It doesn't make anything better at all. And if I'm able to let that go and really appreciate some of the silver linings happening here, it might be a good thing for me. I could appreciate getting more sleep. I could appreciate the chance to sleep in my own bed every night. I could use this as an opportunity to improve my own wellness. And then when I am back at work full speed, I'm going to be my best possible self. These are all good things. And none of these make anything worse for anyone else. As logical and straightforward as it sounds when you say it out loud, it's still a foreign concept for many of us. It might take a bit of practice to really believe it. To be honest, I'm not totally there myself yet. 
I think I'm a few stepping stones away from that opposite bank, but I'm working on it. Okay, one last thought. How can you tell the difference between potentially helpful guilt, the kind that says, I didn't show up as my best self here and I'm going to work hard to do better, versus the misguided kind? Well, honestly, all you have to do is remember to ask yourself the question. That's it. As soon as you ask, is this going to help guide my future actions, you'll have your answer. And if that answer is no, give yourself permission to let it go. If you'd like help sorting through your professional guilt, go to whitecoatlifecoach.com and schedule your free consult. See you next time. Any opinions or views on this podcast or on my website are my own and should not be attributed to my employer.